0: Welcome to Podcasts on Demand, a continuing medical education activity. This activity includes the most recent and current clinical data presented by leading experts. If you are seeking continuing education credit, please review the disclosures and the requirements for a successful completion of the activity prior to listening to the podcast. A link is found in the podcast description that can direct you to this information.
1: Welcome to episode one of four of expert insights in ITP. How do emerging treatment options have the potential to transform patient outcomes in this podcast series? I would recommend that you download the accompanying slides to follow our discussion in this podcast, and this episode will be presented by Dr. Cindy Nooner. It's our pleasure to welcome you to Expert Insights in ITP, How do Emerging Treatment Options have the potential to transform patient outcomes. This series is approved through Rush Medical School and is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Sobe. I'm Jim Bussell and I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Cindy Noonert. Cindy's a pediatric hematologist oncologist in New York whose primary affiliation is with New York Presbyterian Hospital at the Vagelos Columbia Physicians and Surgeons Medical School. She's published many articles in the field of ITP, and in particular was the first author of the two most recent ASH guidelines and the main driver of those. Cindy and I together have had multiple decades of experiencing experience managing patients with immune thrombocytopenia or ITP. And we're hoping to share our experiences with you on emerging management strategies. This includes practical considerations for how to integrate patient reported outcomes and preferences and the latest on treatments into shared decision-making to enable your practice to improve patient outcomes.
0: Thank you, Jim. Uh, It's it's really a pleasure to be here and speak with you guys today. Um, I do want to just cover, here's our learning objectives, just so everybody um, is clear on what we're achieving here with us today. And we're really, we're going to spend some time on what we need Know about ITP, and um, then Dr. Busell will give a great discussion on shared decision-making, and then both of us will present different interactive cases to kind of ground these. So what do you need to know about ITP? Um, what is ITP? So ASH and others have defined ITP as an acquired autoimmune isolated thrombocytopenia, and this is defined as a platelet count less than 100,000. Other cell lines are going to be normal, so normal white blood cell, normal hemoglobin, only the platelets are affected. Often, patients present with petechiae and bruising, but there may be more significant bleeding signs as well. But that's not always the case. The bleeding is very heterogeneic. Physical exam will be normal, other than our bleeding symptoms um, and any pre-existing conditions in the patients. But in particular, we want to pay attention to things like hepatosplenomegaly or lymphadenopathy, things that might kind of send us in a different direction with our diagnosis. So here's our two adults side by side. They're both young adults. They both have thrombocytopenia. Neither has any past medical history to explain their symptoms. They're not taking any medications. But on our left, we have a patient who has leukemia. On our right, we have a patient who has ITP. So very little can distinguish these two patients if we just were focused on that platelet count and the bleeding symptoms. But if we look further, we see that the leukemia patient actually had blast on their peripheral blood smear. They did flow cytometry that really determined the type and lineage of the leukemia by early evening. That patient was admitted to the hospital, underwent a bone marrow biopsy, flow cytometry and additional studies, and began supportive care while really awaiting the true diagnosis to initiate chemotherapy under the right pathway. And they find out what type he has. And after two weeks, he's starting to not feel so good. But he asks, can I just stop taking these steroids? And the medical team nicely, um, but very quickly tells him, not if you want to survive. So in this case, we started steroids for leukemia. We have to continue those. This patient is now on a treatment protocol. And this is a very different circumstance than our other patient that ended up having ITP. So in this patient, we looked at the peripheral blood smear, and we saw some very large, good reactive platelets telling us that bone marrow is capable of doing what it needs to do, but we didn't see any blasts, and we had normal red cell morphology. Our hemoglobin and white count were normal. There was no fatosplenomegaly or lymphadenopathy. We didn't actually even do any other testing because we decided that the patient was stable and that this was a diagnosis of ITP. We also started this patient on steroids since her platelet count was eleven thousand, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but we started her on steroids, and she'll be, you know, kind of tapered off those, and we'll see how she does. She is not admitted to the hospital, and she's asked to come back and see a hematologist promptly. So both patients got steroids, but for very clearly different indications, and for different durations, and different um, different reasons. Our ITP patient is advised that intracranial hemorrhage may occur and to avoid any trauma, infections, and NSAIDs, and to go home, but not to worry. This is something very common, right? You may have a significant bleeding event, but don't worry about it. After two weeks, she also feels miserable being on these steroids and asks if she can stop. And after a discussion about the pros and cons, the medical team decides to rapidly taper her prednisone. So in her case, Her bringing up how she felt on the steroids really led to a change in her treatment plan and engaging in that conversation with her physicians. The patient and her husband discuss ongoing management with their hematologist with key issues being at what platelet count is treatment gonna be warranted going forward? How do you choose the right treatment? There's so many. What are the risks if they decide to have another child and can the patient continue to work as normal? So let's get into a little of these. So we first have to start by defining the thrombocytopenia. So is this ITP from isolated thrombocytopenia or is it some other form? It's important to differentiate ITP from other inherited thrombocytopenias, bone marrow failures, MDS, chronic infections. We need to make sure that we explore these. We also wanna be doing a really good um, detailed history to understand is this ITP that's seemingly primary, meaning not related to an underlying condition, or is there something else that's a driver behind this, some other immune deficiency, lymphoproliferation or infection um, or something more autoimmune? And if we treat that underlying condition, will that actually treat the ITP as well? And then how do we categorize this patient's ITP in terms of when we categorize primary ITP, we talk about newly diagnosed ITP in the first three months. Persistent is three to 12, and then chronic ITP, really we reserve for patients that have had ITP for greater than 12 months. So again, primary ITP, isolated thrombocytopenia, less than 100,000. Secondary is associated with other disorders, many of which we talked about and are shown here. So, when we make our diagnosis, it's really still a diagnosis of exclusion. We have to rule out alternative causes of the thrombocytopenia, but we don't have really any robust clinical or laboratory findings like, say, 100%. This is ITP. It is a diagnosis of exclusion. The only things that have really been common across different um, uh, guidelines is the CDC, the blood film, and then initial HIV and hepatitis C testing. The remainder are things that are either going to be patient-dependent or we might do prior to other therapies or down the road in individual patients. How common is ITP? Well, the overall incidence of ITP is approximately 2 per two to 5 per 100,000 persons in the general population. Translates to about 4 per 100,000 adults per year, and this number is increasing. ITP does increase with age. Uh, The mean age at diagnosis is estimated to be around 50, and it does have a female predominance. The female to male ratio is about two to to four to one, um, particularly in women of childbearing age. The prevalence is also estimated to be between 20 to 30 cases per 100,000 people with 80% having primary ITP. So again, ITP not associated with underlying condition but there may be as many as 100,000 patients with ITP in the United States. But the estimate of the incidence and prevalence are considered highly uncertain just because of the difficulty in accurately assessing cases and deciding um, how severe the cases have to be in order to be classified as ITP. And also there's a delay in the diagnosis um, of ITP for a lot of patients. But again, there may be as many as a 100,000. So this is a rare condition, um, although it might be one of the more common things that we see um, as the classical hematologists. So as I mentioned, when patients present, they might have bruising and petechiae, but the bleeding manifestations are really quite heterogeneic amongst patients. But just shown here, it's mostly going to be mucosal bleeding. So again, it's that purpura, um, the petechiae, the ecchymosis, but we can have mucosal bleeding. I always tell people be sure to look in the mouth, look at the buccal mucosa, see if you have any wet purpura there. Epistaxis can either be a very traumatic long event of epistaxis, but it may also just be epistaxis that's very bothersome that comes and goes. And then, of course, the thing that we fear the most is internal bleeding, particularly intercranial hemorrhage. The good news is that ICH in ITP patients is a rare event. Um, in patients with ITP, less than 1% of children and probably anywhere from one to 2% in adults. Again, this is taken from pooled research data. Estimates trying to capture severe non-intracranial hemorrhage bleeding though is a little bit more difficult because of the lack of standardized definitions, how it's reported in the literature, what people choose to collect. Um, so it's a little bit harder to grasp exactly the non-intercranial, but perhaps still very significant and severe bleeding that patients experience. Who might be at higher risk? So we're really relying on patient characteristics here, but it's imperfectly related to the platelet count, and we do think that likely it's uncommon above 30,000, and most episodes of intercranial hemorrhage occur less than 10,000. Age, particularly over 60, also seems to increase the risk. And then also, intracranial hemorrhage can occur more frequently in the setting of trauma or in those patients that are on anticoagulation or antiplatelet therapy for other reasons. But I think it's important to understand, you know, we've talked so far about the platelet count and about bleeding, but ITP can really impact patients in very diverse ways, even outside of their bleeding symptoms. So patients report to us that they are missing work, they have the expense of care and of receiving treatments, but also they worry about this increased risk of bleeding and the modifications on their activities and restrictions. They have reduced quality of life. This has been shown um, through the application of quality of life uh, research in patients. They suffer from fatigue and depression and anxiety. So this is a more global disease than I think just the platelet count and the bleeding will give us if that's all that we focus on during every visit. We do need to think about the platelet count, right? One of our goals is to maintain a platelet count that's adequate in order to prevent serious bleeding and frequent minor bleeding. It is to allow for that good quality of life and are just feeling good. Um, You know, if I have a patient that really is gunning for a football scholarship, that's a slightly different patient, right? We need to be mindful of um, what platelet count might matter to our patients. Minimizing fatigue and depression, not missing work or school, again, participation in desired activities, taking... uh, Allowing you know that to take other medications is needed. How does that look like? what How many other medications is this patient on? Um, and what does their adherence look like? What are they able to do in terms of keeping up with medications and social support? um and not really not having to be that burden on patients and. Family so now we're going to shift gears just a little bit. We've talked about sort of the the ITP experience, the symptoms, and how patients present. But I want to take a step back and just talk about the actual um, pathophysiology as this relates to some of our treatments and treatment developments and things that we'll, we'll be talking about. So, we know that at the heart of everything is antibody production and platelet destruction. So, we know that we have platelet autoantibody production. These antibodies are attaching to proteins on the platelet surface. Those platelets then encounter uh, the FC receptors and the macrophages, and they get uptaken. Um, But we also know that we have these antibodies reacting on the surface of the megakaryocytes, leading to decreased platelet production. And all of this understanding of the pathophysiology, of which this is a rather simplified schema, But all of this understanding has led to developments um, of our therapies over time, going back as far as classical splenectomy, which just removed the site of platelet destruction, to the advent of rituximab, which was targeting the B cell population, to now the newer therapies, such as the TPO receptor agonists that actually stimulate platelet production. So as we've gained knowledge in pathophysiology, we've been able to match that to advancements in our treatment. But at the core of it, at the crux of it, is loss of tolerance to self with a generation of platelet autoantibodies. So again, here's our treatments. Um- And we're going to highlight a few. Um, So we have corticosteroids, either dexamethasone or prednisone, and IVIG. These are some of our initial treatments. We have subsequent treatment options. Um, Again, we talked just briefly on the last slide about rituximab and the TPO receptors. We have the historic splenectomy. And then fostamatinib is sort of a newer agent that also prevents that macrophage conformational change. We have several other therapies shown here under salvage treatments. Um, many of these are considered third line treatments, although depending upon access to medications, they may actually be utilized as a second line. And then we have emerging treatments. This is in my mind kind of the exciting place of where we're going with ITP. So in conclusion, ITP is not a simple disease. It is common and heterogeneic with accelerated platelet destruction and or impaired production. Which laboratory tests to obtain will really vary on the clinical suspicion in the individual patient, but the things that are certain are that we need that CBC, that differential, a good look at the peripheral blood smear, and at least testing for HIV and hepatitis C. Many treatments are available, allowing for a wide range of choices when treatment is needed, and individual patients are going to have different needs, desires, tolerances, Requiring a lot of shared decision-making, which I'm excited is going to be a topic coming up. And then treatment choices can be complicated because we don't have good biomarkers or comparative trials or curative options. And so sometimes it really is about sitting down and individualizing the treatment plan. Thank you for listening to the first episode of the Expert Insights on ITP, How Do Emerging Treatment Options Have the Potential to Transform Patient Outcomes? podcast series. Please join us for episode two to hear about shared decision-making and ITP. We hope you found this podcast useful and educational. To receive continuing education credit and to download your printable certificate, please go to the activity page at practice.cme.com to complete the post-test and evaluation to receive continuing education credit.